Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled The Manifold Wonder of Love. You see it between the goalposts, painted in athlete's eye black, scrawled on poster board on street corners, graffitied on brick walls, and plastered on bumpers all around the world. John 3.16. But do we catch the immense weight of those precious words, For God so loved. God loves, and thusly he gave us the marvelous gift of his Son, who loved us so much so as to give us his own most holy spirit. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Now if you've hung out in Ellersley for the past, oh I don't know, two months, you're going to think that I'm lacking tremendous creativity or any creativity at all uh, when it comes to naming messages. I actually had, I think, four different titles for this message, and the one I had titled it all week long ended up being the title, which is The Manifold Wonder of Love. And I've said to myself for quite a few weeks, I should do a message called The Manifold Wonder of Love. Why? Because I did a message called The Manifold Wonder of Grace. I did a message called The Manifold Wonder of Law. And, you know, I could do a a message called The Manifold Wonder of Hope. However, I went right to the chief, the chief end, love. A lot of times we can get bogged down in some of the nuance of the gospel, which, by the way, is not really being bogged down, because I tell you what, sink me in that bog anytime you want. I love the beauties of Christ's work on that cross and how it actually draws us unto itself, and the work of law being a schoolmaster, and then the work of grace, but what is it for? What does it evidence? What is its end game? Well, we're going to talk about that today, and the end game is love, which ironically, the end game of God is the very same thing as the motive of God. That which starts God and moves God to action is that which comes forth and is the end conclusion. So let's, let's begin this message. Manifold, meaning variegated color. When we look at God, we cannot see all of who he is. When we see one dimension of the one fold of his garment, like holiness, he really is holy. God is holy. However, he is more than holiness. When we see his righteousness, he is indeed righteous, but that's one attribute of who he is. He is merciful, but he's more than that. And so the manifold is the many folds of his person pulled out. Now, we just cannot comprehend it. And so to see God in his manifold wonder is conceivably impossible for any of us in here. And so he reveals himself to us in folds. And we take one fold and we bask in it and we fall down on our face and go, holy, holy, holy. Oh, you are love, you are love, you are love. You are so merciful, you're so merciful, you're so merciful. We see it, we behold it, it changes us. So this is beginning to stretch out. And then each one of those folds, little did we know, you could take each one of those folds and stretch it out. When you start dealing with law, you, just, that's why we walked through it, the manifold wonder of law. We have this very limited, puny idea of what that means, law. Or how about grace? When we stretched it out before us, it's just extraordinary. It's moving. How about love? What if we do that to love and we stretch out its variegated color scheme? Which is... Truly, love is such a defining element of all of that manifold person and nature of God. He is love. And so much of who he is is revealed in love. The deluge. It's a classic historic term. We don't use the word as much today. One of my favorite uh, novels is actually a book called The Deluge. 
by Henrik Sienkiewicz. By the way, it's worth a read. Uh, but the deluge. What is a deluge? Well, let's go back to the 1828 dictionary and sort of unfurl what a deluge is. It's any overflowing of water, an inundation, meaning it's too much. Whoa, we have way too much water. Whoa, it's still coming. Whoa, we don't have a place for it. That's a deluge. A flood, a swell of water over the natural banks of a river or shore of the ocean. You see, a normal melting of snow in the mountains create, you know, goes into its rivers and then spreads out throughout the countryside. Everything's healthy. But when there's too much and there's an inundation or a, you know, we have too much snowfall and it melts too quick, we can have what's known as a deluge. We usually wouldn't call it that, but it's a flood. It overflows its natural banks. We don't have room for it. It's too much. Spreading over the adjacent land, the great flood or overflowing of the earth by water in the days of Noah. It's actually what it says in 1828 Dictionary. It mentions Noah. Listen to this line. Now, I made it big just so you wouldn't accidentally miss it. The waters deluged the earth and destroyed the old world. You're like, yeah. Where do you think I'm going with this? Okay, now look at this. The waters deluged the earth and destroyed the old world. What happened in the flood is an old world that was sinful and ridden with problems in rebellion against God was deluged. And so that which was old was discarded. And so a new world began to emerge. Genesis 9, I do set my bow or my rainbow in the cloud, says God, and it shall be for a token of covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I'll remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall no more become a flood to destroy. Now, what I did here, this is just to throw a little curveball at you with where we're going. God has a covenant and in his covenant, he's saying, you see this bow, this rainbow, which is a mark of his nature, by the way. A nature, the rainbow has never changed. In all these centuries, thousands of years, you know a rainbow still, if it's up in the sky, is the exact same color scheme? Exact same color scape as it was way back then. It's a symbol of the unchanging God. God doesn't change. When he makes a promise, he keeps it. And still in the sky is the same promise. He will not destroy the world with a flood. Well, he doesn't say that he won't heal the world with a flood. I'll wait till you get into this message. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of, the, of all flesh that is upon the earth. I was talking with Leslie last night, and she asked me what my message was on this week. And so I was talking to her. It's very hard to say a message that's going to take me a little longer than a few minutes to share with you. Uh, for those of you that are used to very short messages, you just arrived at Ellerslie. Uh, <laughs> and I was trying to describe it in the old three-minute version. It just doesn't work very well. So I said, it's sort of like our water purifier. And so I, I said, after I said it, I like, that just ended up in my message. Uh, the Ludi's water purifier, insufficient to supply for every thirsty Ludi. We have a problem in the Ludi house, and it's known as our water purifier. It's this funny thing that sits in the corner, uh, and you need to fill it up all day long. And it is a lot of work. Hudson has a chore. He's supposed to be filling it up. And I don't care who comes over to our house. They're always dumping water in it. And guess what? We have too many thirsty Ludis and too many thirsty visitors to the Ludi house 
that our water is always on empty. And so we're always doing this thing where we're tipping it and trying to get the dregs out of it because we all don't want to go to the sink. We've tasted good water. I don't want the sink water. I don't want to go back to that when I have this. So literally, oftentimes, I'll go thirsty and wait for it to seep down through the filter and get to the bottom, and then I'll tip it and try and get something out. Okay, we have a problem in the Ludi house. And Leslie brought this up the other day. She goes, we need to get one of those, like, under the sink uh, water purifiers so we don't have to go through this. And I'm thinking dollars and cents here. And I said, we're fine with our water purifier. I mean, it's fine. And of course, you know, I'm admitting to you right now, and I even was saying that to her last night. It's like our water purifier. She goes, see, exactly. (laughs) Because we have more thirst in our home than we're able to quench. Because our family keeps growing up and they drink more water. And this little... Air water purifier, which was fine, was just Leslie and I that were married. You know, and that thing would work fine. We'd fill it up once a day, and it was great. Now it doesn't work. It is insufficient for the task of slacking the looty thirst. So listen to this scripture. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. Okay, now what is going to happen in this is I'm going to liken grace to a mighty rushing river. And I'm not the one that's going to do that. God in his word will do it, okay? But I'm prepping you for this. That there's a mighty rushing river, a deluge, a waterfall that comes forth out of God. And God makes it very clear that this grace is sufficient. It is everything you need. You hold your cup out, and you're not trying to tip it to get a little more out. How many of you are struggling in your walk with God right now in such a way where you have a little drip coming out and you're coming to God and you're trying to tip the tank and you're like, God, I know there has to be more in you. I'm sort of surprised of how little there is. I'm here to tell you that the word of God makes it very clear that your experience is not telling you what is actually true. Something is most likely wrong in your life, which is not accessing the deluge, the waterfall, the mighty river. There is something that is meant to pour into our lives, and I'm here to tell you that this message needs to finally awaken us out of a stupor of accepting a little looty water purifier in our kitchen instead of literally opening up the floodgates of God to come in and slack that thirst that we have. A study in the manifold wonder of love. Motive. Now, this is going to go back to the message, I think it was the Manifold Wonder of Law, where I talked about motive, that which moves someone. A motive is like automotive, which means something that does move, like an animal is an automotive. I know that sounds strange, but it's different than a plant, which does not move. They both have life, but one moves, and the other one doesn't. Motive is the concept of movement. We, are, we all have a motive, and that motive defines where we go and how we get there. And so motive, that which causes motion, that which incites to action, that which determines the choice or moves the will. Praarizo, and this is what I brought up the other day, and this is actually the word for predestination, and I know some of you were concerned that I brought it up in the first place. However, the concept of the word predestination, which just happens to be translated predestination, is praarizo, which is the predecision. It is something that is set, but not just anything. It is a motive that is set. The action of God is actually predetermined. God is who he is. You know that he doesn't change? 
So when he defines himself, he says, I've always been that way. In me is no shadow of turning. So I have set out to do something before the foundations of the earth. Guess what? I will accomplish it. You can call that predestination if you want. It's praritzo. It's the predecision. God said, I will. And he is set in his gate, set in his sights. You cannot alter God. He is who he is. So when he says, and wait till you hear what his motive is, because his motive is set. His motive isn't harsh and demeaning, like, I will get back at them. No, his motive is, brace yourselves for this one, love. Okay, that is a set motive of God. So the predecision, the predetermination, the eternally established inner wiring of the will, that which is set and hardened long ago. Here's a key thing for you to notate. God's motive is set. Satan's motive is set. They can be known. They are predictable to fulfill actually what it says in the word of God. God says, here's, here's my set motive. I revealed it. I'm not going to change from this. You study it, get to know it. That's the way I'll always be. Two plus two will always equal four. Set. The enemy, set. His motive is established. God reveals it and says, this is who he is. This is how he works. This is what he's after. This is his agenda. You can know it. Your motive is in wet clay right now. One of the key things about this message is understanding that your motive hangs in the balance. Your motive is what must be set right. Because right now, when you just come to God and you're not yet changed, you're not altered, your motive is incorrect. You are interested in you. You want to take, you want to receive, you want to exalt yourself. However, God's motive is very different than yours. And you're having a clash with God. Because God has a motive, a praaritso. So the set motive, we're going to call it the praaritso. The guaranteed, wholly predictable, never shocking behavior, altogether always in perfect congruence with the revealed nature. The guaranteed behavior. So I called this the set motive. Now I'm going to call it the guaranteed behavior. There are certain things you can just know about God. He has revealed himself. He doesn't change. He is who he says he is. There is no shadow of turning in him. So when you understand he is, you can know he always will be. He's always been that way. He is, and he always will be. One of the key elements of faith is knowing that God is. And you could say, well, he is what? No, no, he is, which means he doesn't alter. He's the eternal one. He is who he is. That's what it means by he is. When Moses asked God, who are you? What, what name should I say? You know, who should I say sent me? He says, I am that I am. And Moses could have said, you are what? <laughs> he is. He is the eternal one. He is who he is. And so when you know who he is, he never alters from who he is. Okay? So the guaranteed behavior, the praritzo. You know that there's a guaranteed behavior of God and there's a guaranteed behavior of the devil. They're predictable, and you can take them to the bank. The devil will always behave this way. That's his motive. God will always behave this way. He cannot change. The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy, says Jesus. The thief meaning Satan. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. There's a revelation of a praarizo right there. Satan has a praarizo, a set motive. He has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But God has come that they may have life and that more abundant. The praritzo, or the set motive, or the guaranteed behavior of darkness. To steal, kill, and destroy. 
And I added a little line at the bottom to break the law. It's just what happens. You see, there's a law that God establishes. However, in the very beginning, there wasn't a law. It was, it was clear, but it wasn't broken. And so when it was broken, what ended up declaring within and through the enemy is that there is a new motive. There is a motive that is against God. And what God intends to do, the enemy, seems to be contrary to it. It's an enmity. It's opposite. And so God's law, as we will go into, is his perfect righteousness, the perfect behavior, the God behavior, the prarizo of God, that which God intends to accomplish. And guess what the en- enemy intends to accomplish? The exact opposite. He is against that which God is for. So to steal, to kill, and destroy, to break the law. How about the prarizo of light? To bring life and that more abundant. Look at this little extra little notation here. To fulfill the law. In other words, God is motivated to maintain his nature, to exude his nature, to give his nature, to give life. And in doing so, he fulfills the law, which he himself gives, which is only a reflection of his nature, which cannot change. Okay, the law. That which God gave in order to reveal that man's motive is wrong. How would you know that your motive is wrong? How would you see it? Because you don't recognize your motive is wrong. You're like, I'm fine. Hey, there's no issue with me. Yeah, I'm about me. Oh, why wouldn't I be? I'm me. Why wouldn't I be about my advancement? Why wouldn't I be about my pleasures? Why wouldn't I be about my comforts? And some of you are thinking, yeah. Ah, speak it, Eric. I'm not speaking that. That's you speaking. So how do we know that our motive is incorrect? The law. The law actually shows us God's motive, God's behavior. And what it does, it stands up against us and exposes the fact that we are not as God is. Well, if we're not as God is, who are we like? Oh, and here's the enemy standing there going, "Uh uh-huh. Hey, you and me, brothers. And we're like, no, I don't want to be like him. I don't want to share his destiny. I don't want to die. I don't, I, I want life. The law exposes that. Was that which God gave in order to reveal that man's motive is wrong, to clarify the just punishment for a, ran, a man's motive, and to woo man's soul to repentance before man's wrong motive becomes set and no longer fixable. I don't know how to describe how motives are set. However, probably most of us understand. It's that concept of you can't train an old dog new tricks. There's a season of wetness to our clay in our life and in our motive. I don't know, I can't describe how long it is, and I don't know if it's shorter for some people or it's the same length of time for everyone. I don't know. I'm not in charge of those things. However, I can say that there's a season in your life where your motive is malleable. And when you harden in that season, you risk eternally hardening into that same motive and sharing forever the motive of darkness and thusly the destiny of darkness. So let's talk about the love motive. Here's what I'm going to say. God has a motive, but his motive is his nature. It's who he is. Well, who is God? He is love. This is part of who he is, and this is what he expresses. This is his end. This is his agenda. What moves him? What causes him to do? Is it his holiness that moves him? Is it just his you know, patience that moves him? He's moved by love. That's the instigator 
of his soul. That's like a core combustion engine. It gets going and it moves him forward. I don't really even know what a core combustion engine is. So some of you are like, what's that? Uh, it just sounds like something that moves you from the core. <laughs> the love motive, this is what God's love motive is, to share of itself. To give, it could say to share of himself. To give the life of God away. It's just such a strange thought to just ponder that God is moved to share himself. God has something, but he doesn't want to keep it just for himself. He wants relationship. And so he seems moved to give, to spend, to offer. You need what I have. And so he gives it. I'd have a hunch that that's why he created us in the first place, was so that he could share with us who he is. Listen to this. Love is the fulfilling of the law. You see, remember how I said the set motive of God, the prarizu of light, is to fulfill the law? You see, God, his motive is love. And what fulfills the law? What fulfills perfect righteousness? What is as God is? Well, it's love. And the law. The law says this is what God is like. And then love acts it out. It demonstrates it. It perfectly matches the requirements of perfect righteousness. It is everything God is. Revelation 22. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now we're going to fast forward to verse 17. And let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Now this is all the way to the very end of the Bible. The 66th book, and it's right at the very end of the 66th book. And God is showing us something. However, this is not something any different than the way it started. This is how it all started. There was a garden. There was a fountainhead. There was a river that rushed through this garden, that watered this garden. And there was a tree of life in that garden. However, something seemed to go horribly wrong, which separated us from that garden. And now, because of the set motive of God, who desires to give, who desires to share all that he has, that which hindered us and separated us from that garden, from that river, and from that tree, has been removed. And here we are in the great conclusion of the canon of Scripture, hearing once again that man dwells with God, and that that river flows freely, and that tree grows lush, and is available to all. Whoa! What happened in between? Well, there's quite the story and the drama that happens in between. However, the prarizzo of God will be established. God says, this is my agenda. I will carry it out. Sin. Boo. That which keeps us from the garden of love. Okay, now, let's describe your life as a garden. To use a certain scriptural turn of phrase, a garden enclosed. 
You see, it's not just a garden that's open for every predator to come in and eat of the fruits. Or I don't know that you call bunny rabbits predators. Uh, they sure do feel like it, I think, to some people that try and have a garden. But the point being, it's a garden enclosed, which means it's locked in. It's protected. It's protected from those that would violate its fruit, its beauty. And this is what God likens his bride to, ironically, in Song of Solomon. is a garden enclosed where there is a river that rushes in and feeds that garden. Now, the garden's word in Scripture, we talk about Garden of Eden, and then we use that term throughout Scripture. It's a reference back to that garden. But the word garden in Scripture refers to not what we typically think, like the carrot you know, patch and the, you know, the blueberries over here. It actually seems to reference trees, like it's a garden of trees, which we would typically call an orchard. But it bears fruit. Okay, so when we talk about the tree of life in the end, you need to recognize that it's a reference back to a garden, the Garden of Eden. It's heaven. It's God's dwelling place. It's where God dwells. He's Emmanuel, God with us. And he is once again with us walking in the garden. Okay, so we have a a problem in the very beginning of the whole story we have the serpent with a different praarizo. He has an agenda. He has a motive. And his desire is to violate this garden. His desire is to cut you off from its fruit. What does God want to give you? Life. He wants to share himself with you. What does the enemy want? He doesn't want God's life to be shared with you. He wants to hinder you from receiving it. See, the enemy is very smart. It says he is more subtle than all the other creatures. He's cunning. He's tactical. And he has wiles. He is interested in sabotaging your life. And so what he knows is that if you violate that nature of God, that actually you fall on the far side of God's grace. And that river would be cut off to you. What did God say? Eat of this tree and you will die. It's called the law of sin and death. You disobey. You disobey the law. You disobey the command of Scripture. You disobey, get this, the word of God. Then you die. Simple statement, that's exactly what happened. And thusly, sin is that rebellion where we took a seat that was not ours. And when we sat in that seat, that throne, all the water that was gushing through our garden ceased. I don't know if you remember what it said in this scripture, but it says, he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal. Where was it proceeding from? The throne of God. Now, in the New Testament terminology, do you know where the throne of God is? Do you know who is the temple of God? It's actually us. You know that the throne of God is in the temple of God, the mercy seat, the Ark of Covenant is actually a seat. And what Isaiah even sees, he sees the Lord high and lifted up, and his train fills the temple. He's seated upon a throne in the temple? Yeah, that's the dwelling place in the throne room of the King of Kings. Well, who has become that temple? We have. When we take that seat in this temple that belongs to God, it's like all that river of life ceases. The gate closes for the flood. See, floodgate would have been a really interesting title for this. But it cuts off. What happens to a garden if you cut off the river of life? It dries up and death reigns. Have you ever noticed that even though there's no water and we're in a drought, have you noticed that there's certain things that still grow? I don't know how that works, and I don't know exactly what the... uh, I haven't studied weeds in Scripture to some great detailed level, but it's fascinating that they seem to thrive 
off of death. They seem to thrive off of drought and famine. They grow anyways. Have you ever noticed that you still bear fruit in your life, even with the river of life cut off? However, what you're bearing is not good fruit. Any of us that are gardeners or have any sense of what is a nice, lush piece of property would know. A a property full of green weeds is not necessarily a healthy property. Still has a lot of green on it. It looks like life, but it's a false counterfeit life. And in the biblical terminology, it cannot please God. So sin, that which keeps us from the garden of love. The confession of Samuel Logan Brengle. What I would like to read here is something that I read this week. It just happened to fit really beautifully with what uh, we're talking about today. And that is, is a testimony of a man from, I think, 1896. And actually what happened in his life was before that. But he was one of the lead officers of the Salvation Army. So whatever you think about the Salvation Army now and its ministry now, I tell you what, its beginnings were quite extraordinary. And the impact that they made, William and Catherine Booth, was amazing. And Samuel Logan Bringle was one of uh, the lead instruments that God used. And this is his confession of coming to God. And so just listen closely. He gets up and he makes a confession. He says, God blessed the word mightily to others, but I think he blessed it most to myself. Remember last week we talked about the bold confession? This is his bold confession. I know that doesn't sound like much of a statement. However, listen to what he says about it. That confession put me on record. It cut the bridges down behind me. Three worlds were now looking at me as one who professed that God has given him a clean heart. I could not go back. I had to go forward. God saw that I meant to be true till death. So two mornings after that, just as I got out of bed and was reading some of the words of Jesus, he gave me such a blessing as I have never had, a dream, never had dreamed a man could have this side of heaven. It was a heaven of love that came into my heart. I walked out over Boston Common before breakfast, weeping for joy and praising God. Oh, how I loved. In that hour, I knew Jesus, and I loved him till it seemed my heart would break with love. I loved the sparrows. I loved the dogs. I loved the horses. I loved the little urchins on the street. I loved the strangers who hurried past me. I loved the heathen. I love the world. What's happening to this man? What's happening is something had been dried up in him. His garden had lost its life. Sin had reigned. But then he came back to Jesus. By faith, he made his confession of his belief in Jesus Christ. And in going on record with Jesus by faith, it seems that something else awakened within him. And it was like a floodgate opened up within him. And in flowed a mighty river. And how did this mighty river affect him? Well, that testimony is a very unique one to me because I would like you to just sort of examine your soul. Has a mighty river flooded through you to the point where it changes your motive? You see, our motive has always been about ourselves, but why? We're seated on the throne. When we yield up our throne and give it back to its rightful possessor, the one who rules the garden properly. That is the only way for those clean waters of the river of life to begin to gush forth into our soul. The heavenly picture, the set motive of God was to bring life, to give, to bless, or to love. So I'm going to say the set motive of God is to love. That's his motive. That's what he's about. I mean, just, when we go through the scriptures on this, it's just pretty clear. 
God established an agenda, and his agenda is to give, to love, to help, to heal. And so what we have is a set motive to bring life, to give, to bless, to love. So what did he do? He built a garden. It's called the Garden of Eden, and he set his creation in it so that they would begin to partake of him, his life, all that he has to give. And to protect that garden, he says, no, you can eat of any tree, but if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. In that very day, you will die. Disobedience will cut you off. But if you walk in agreement with my word, with my expressed word, then you will live. You know, fast forward to the cross. One tree, if you eat, you die. The next tree, if you eat, you live. It's the cross. If you turn back to the tree with Jesus, you believe his word. Instead of negating his word through doubt and unbelief and saying, but that fruit looks so luscious. But now you turn and you say, but I believe in this word. The fruit that hung on that tree, you must eat it, Jesus says. Unless you eat of my body and drink of my blood, you have no life in you. Believe, you live. Back in the garden, you eat, you die. Okay, Jesus has set things aright. But what even moved him to come and hang upon a tree and to be the fruit that we would eat? What moved him? It was love. The set motive to bring life, to give, to bless. He has given you a garden. He has given you a place in which he can plant his own life, that he can pour forth his river of grace into, that you would flourish and bear fruit in season, that you would cascade forth with his very life onto this world around you. It's a privilege. This is his set motive. However, something has gone wrong, we have to admit. So the river gushes forth, the life of the Son is given, grace, the love package in the person of God. So God creates a garden, and then he gives his life. But how is his life given? His life in, in Scripture, given, is called grace. Now, some of you would know it as the Spirit of God. Okay, that's the same thing. It's personal. Grace is not impersonal. It's not a force. It is a person, just like truth. Truth is Jesus. Jesus is true. There's no lie in him. However, Jesus is not an impersonal fact like two plus two equals four. He's a person. Grace is not just a power. It's not just a force. It's not just a mercy. It is a person. And so the river gushes forth. God intends to bring life, so what does he do? He sends forth a river with his life. What gives life to a garden? Water. Okay, and that water then brings nutrients. It, 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 it nourishes the soul it nourishes the soil, and as a result, those seeds that are planted have the ability to sink deep into that soil and find nutrient to be able to grow forth. And what are they supposed to do? Bear fruit. And then a tree grows up in the midst of the river with healing in its leaves and abundant fruit for all to partake of. It's called love. What started it? Love. What is the chief fruit that is born of our lives? Love. You see, God has a motive. And what his motive is, is to see your motive corrected, to bear his motive, so that you in your life can bear love as well. How will you know the disciples of Jesus? By their love. It's not by the fact that they have a river. It's by the tree that bursts forth with fruit upon it. Okay? So as we go through this, you're going to recognize this is how God works with us. He is moved by love to bring us life. 
And so he pours out his grace. How are we saved? By grace. And yet what does that grace do in us? It grows forth that tree, that tree of Jesus, the plant of renown. The full maturity of Jesus begins to grow forth in us in that, in that river of grace poured out from the very throne room of God. And what comes forth? But fruit that resembles our very king. The love. So we're going to walk through this garden of yours. First, let's start with the love. We'll call it the fountainhead for the mighty river. So it wouldn't be inaccurate to call the river love. It is a river of love. However, it is more specifically understood in Scripture as grace. It's the Spirit of God, the carrying device that brings that which is at the throne, that which is possessed in all authority, and brings it to us, us lowly creatures. How are we saved? By that river that gushes forth. And it reaches us in our low state. And it grows us up and causes us to flourish. So the fountainhead is love. For God so loved the world. This is a fountainhead. God bursts forth out of his motive. And he says, I want to give life. My people are in bondage. I must rescue. I must give. It's not about him. And yet, he is the center of all. He wants to share his life. That is his motive, is to give of what he has to see others built stronger. For God so loved. So the garden enclosed. This is us. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. A fountain of gardens. A well of living waters and streams from Lebanon. So God is the fountainhead and he sends forth a river into this garden. And we thrive and we flourish, however... Something's happened where most of us cannot testify that that says anything about us. We would have to call this a new creation because we can't relate to it. The Jews would typically refer to Song of Solomon as the Holy of Holies, a picture of restoration. The violation. What came in the way? What violated what God was doing? And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. What has robbed the water of life, the clearest crystal, out of your soul? Well, the serpent showed you some fruit, and you ate of it. You were in disobedience with the word of God. Instead of living in faith with, towards the word of God, you lived in faith towards the word of the devil. This will supply you satisfaction. This will give you comfort. This is the means of salvation. Instead of turning to Jesus and his truth. You have turned away from God, and you've turned unto your own understanding. And as a result, the river has dried up. So now, the garden is closed off. Listen to this scripture. So he drove out the man. The man is removed from the presence of God. That's what the garden is. It's heaven. It's that heavenly territory. The place where the mighty river is. The tree of life grows. Where the abundant fruit of God is. We're cut off from it. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. That way has been blocked off. Even for our sake, it's blocked off. Because to be unholy, to be unrighteous in the presence of God means certain death. 
And so there is a space of mercy, a span of mercy that is given for God so loved. You see, his motive is constant throughout this whole thing. He knows that we're violators. He knows that we share in the destiny of the violator himself, Satan. And because he so loves us, he is moved to action. In the very beginning, even when he is driving them out, he is giving a prophecy of one who will come, the seed of the woman who will come and crush the head of this very serpent. The desolate ruin. No longer are we a garden enclosed. There is no flourishing life. There's no water. There's no gushing river. We are a desolate ruin. We don't even recognize it, though. That's the problem with us. We actually think we're perfectly fine. Hey, look, my weeds, everyone in this world loves my weeds. In fact, I grow the best weeds in this world today. I have a tremendous talent with growing weeds. I have a whole business of selling weed. See? The desolate ruin. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And guess what? God cannot lie. We died. All of our growth, all of our life, all of that fruit, all of that river was cut off. And as a result, when you cut off the light of the world, when you cut off the river of life, what's going to happen to your garden? Uh Uh-huh. It's not going to look too hot, is it? And that's where we find ourselves. However, remember the motive of God. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. When we turn from God and believing his word, and we believe the word of the enemy, on any matter, we die. The power of sin. Now look at the subtitle I gave on this one. The deception runs deep. Now, if you have a desolate garden, wouldn't it be pretty obvious that you wouldn't want to stay that way? Wouldn't you think, you know what? There's so much more intended for my garden. I don't want to stay this way. Oh, God, what must I do to be saved? No, we have no interest in God. We have no interest in light returning to our garden. We have no interest in that river returning. You see, the power of sin carries with it the very deception that originally lured you to that tree. And what it deceives you of is that you are self-sufficient. And what is growing in your plot of land is, if anything, perfectly fine with God, if there even is a God. Darkness reigns in your soul, and as a result, you can't test what the enemy is saying to your soul against true light and true understanding. Listen to this line. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. What is a fool according to Scripture? Well, let's start with the wise man. What is a wise man? One who builds his house upon what? The rock, Jesus Christ, the truth. What is a fool? One who builds his house upon anything else but the rock, okay? Upon sand, something that is unstable. He doesn't know it's unstable. A fool doesn't set out to find sand. A fool honestly believes that that sand is a perfectly fine foundation, and that's where he builds. He's a fool. He has not believed the record. He has not believed the testimony of God, And in many ways, he's cut off from the testimony. He can't even hear it. He doesn't even know it. The power of sin is enshrouding him. It's like noise-canceling headphones over his soul. He cannot hear the beckoning of the Spirit of grace. So the love. Now, this is just a reminder. Now, remember what motivates God. We have now created a desolate garden. And we don't even recognize that it's desolate. What's God going to do? Because here we... 
The ones that are cut off, why does God even put up with us? Why does he just cut us off and say, you know what? They don't even want me. Why would I waste another moment? But what moves him? What is his praharitzo? It's to give of himself. And he created this creation. He created you. And for whatever reason, he loves you. He loves me. And he pursues us with his love. It moves him. That is his motive. And so this is just a reminder. The love, the fountainhead that aches to burst forth its mighty healing waters for the sacred garden's sake. Do you remember the story of the prodigal? What's the father doing? He's staring out the window longingly, fogging up the glass. What's he looking for? The return. You see, he has sent forth his spirit into this world to do a work. What what is that work? It's to draw us back to the father. Why? Why would the father do this? For God so loved. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Where is the motive? It's in God. It's not that we suddenly became loving. And we said, you know what? I really love God. That we're in our desolate room. We're like, oh, I love nice gardens. I would love to walk in the cool of the day with God. We are dead in our trespasses. We cannot even see our miserable state. It's God who has moved to awaken us to our misery. Not to rub it in, but to rescue us from it. The law. What rescues us from our miserable state? And you can say, well, it's not the law. How do we know our miserable state? First, the deception must be exposed. The law, where does it come from? The praritzo of God. For God so loved. You could say it this way. For God so loved that he gave us the law. He gave us the law so that we would be correct and we would recognize that our garden isn't as it ought to be. This isn't the way I intended you, Eric. Please, awaken. Do you recognize this? The Garden of Eden is the way I intended you. There's a river I want to gush through your land. There's a mighty tree of life that I want to grow up in you. I want you to bear fruit. I want your life to be healing to others. My healing in and through you. So the law. First, the deception must be exposed. Listen to Paul in Romans 7. For I was alive without the law once. This is a funny line. A lot of us trip over it, but it's like our garden, and we don't have the law, which is like a light that is coming in to shine into our desolation, our weeds. We were alive without the law once. Oh, we're fine. Jumping around, doing little dances and jigs in our desolate ruin. We were alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived. Whoa. I'm not supposed to be bearing these weeds. So you cut one off, you take your scissors and you cut them, and guess what? Now suddenly all you see is even a greater increase of your sin. When the law comes, it begins to expose the fact that, no, you actually have a problem, don't you? What? What's wrong with my garden? You were fine. Now suddenly all you're thinking about is, oh, this is wrong. I got weeds everywhere, and they won't stop. I, I, I don't want to be like this anymore. I want to be like the law, but there's nothing inside of me that is able to overcome my problem with weeds. So, and the commandment, which was ordained to life. You see, the commandment was not an evil thing. It was ordained to give you life. But how does it give you life? It gives you life by leading you to the one who can rescue you. It exposes your problem. So it says, I found the the commandment, which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. Wherefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? 
God forbid. No, that's not what happened. God's proud reach so is because of his love, he sent forth the law that you would recognize that that behavior is wrong. So that what would happen? You would cry out and say, who can save me from this body of death? You know, that's the conclusion of Romans 7. Who can save me from this body of death? Who can save me from this desolate ruin? Is there anyone who can save? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It says, but sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. Do you see it, says God? Do you see the exceeding sinfulness of your sin? Do you see that? Because when you see it, you know what you're ripened for? You know what you're ready for? The Savior. The Savior from sin. You see, if you don't know that you have a desolate ruin, you know how ridiculous it is to say, yeah, you need a Savior from your desolate ruin. I'm fine. You know, God wants to remove all your weeds. I like my weeds. You don't recognize how harmful your weeds are. You don't recognize the just punishment for your weeds. You don't recognize that you can't get rid of those weeds no matter how hard you try. You are spurning the grace of God because you were never awakened by the work of law. It says that law is a schoolmaster which leads us to Christ. That's what the law does. It leads us to the Savior. The gospel, the work of God to restore the garden to its grand purpose. Now, it's ironic, but I don't have time to go through the depths of the gospel. But there is one who has come to this earth, moved by the prarizzo of God, the love of God, to shed his very blood, to correct that which is wrong. And remember, the way to the tree of life was blocked, and to remove that blockage, and to untie us from the throne in our life so that we could set down so that that river of life can begin to cast forth, cast uh, forth? That's not the word I'm looking for. Cascade forth, there we go, into our souls once again, clear as crystal. So the work of God to restore the garden to its grand purpose. But God commendeth his love toward us. So there's his motive. He wants to bring love to us. He commends his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us even when we were a desolate ruin. And even when we didn't even want him to die. We weren't asking him to. And Christ came and died for us. In this was manifested the love of God toward us. Because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. So we are seeing the manifest love of God in and through the fact that Jesus came and gave up his life for us. The repentance. Here you are in your desolate ruin of a garden. Walls all broken down, no longer is it a garden enclosed, it's a desolate ruin opened up to all the fiends and all the, uh, the creatures that might want to come in and make it their own home. In other words, you have no blockage, you have no fence, you are a slave unto the enemy's agenda for your life. And so God shows you the law and he awakens you to the fact that you are ruined, that your life is not as it ought to be. You know what the Spirit of God is working on you in and through the law? Do you know what the Spirit of God was poured out at a day called Pentecost? You know what the Pentecost was? It was a celebration of the giving of the law. It's the helper. You see, the Holy Spirit is the helper, and so is the law. It helped us to Christ Jesus. You know who used the law to convict you of sin? The Spirit of God. You know who 
is the one poured out at Pentecost? The Spirit of God. The one that is now going to help you enter into the paradise of God. The one who is going to rebuild the walls of your garden and restore it. Same one. So the repentance, the Spirit of God is wooing you. He is convicting you of sin in and through the law. Why? So that you would stay here in your desolate ruin? So that you would remain in the same state? No, but that you would put off the old man. You would put off this old way of living and that you would take on a new one. So the admittance to the wrong and the putting off of the rebellion, the laying down of the weed seed. You know how many of us? We have a whole bag of seed. We're shooing it through our life. You know what we do? We throw it down and we say, this is actually contrary to the agenda of God in my life. Get rid of it. Turn your back on it. All the weeds, these are wrong, God. I declare that you are right and my weeds are wrong. My rebellion that caused this in the first place is wrong and you are right. And you are the only solution. And God says, put off this old manner of tending to a garden. Put it off. Turn away from it. And so we turn away from our old life and we turn unto a new life in Christ Jesus. So here in Ephesians and then Colossians, it's a combination. It says, put off concerning the former conversation, the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. Put off all of these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds. You see, Jesus is the new man. And what you are doing in the transaction of the gospel is you are entering into him. Instead of your old life, your old manner of doing things, you are actually turning into him. He's like a cloak, he's garments. And you are clothed in him. And so what you have to do to be clothed in him is you have to put off your old way of doing things. It's a change of motive. You have a motive which is all about you. You have a motive which says, my exaltation, that I would be seen, that I would be known, that I would prosper, that I would be comfortable. And that motive is the gate that is blocking the flood from entering in. That motive is crippling you. And so repentance at its deepest level is opening the floodgate by changing the motive and saying, I receive the motive of God at the core of my being. I delight to give. I get off the throne and it's no longer about me. I allow him to be on the throne and this is now all about him. Well, what's God all about? If God has your body and his motive is set, it's set for your life too. What does he want to do? He wants to give everything you get from Jesus, what's he want to do through you? Give it. Share it. It all must go outward. That's how the river flows. The floodgate must be opened. Repentance is literally getting off of that position. Refusing to return to an old way of doing things that has caused death. And instead of sinning and dying, you now believe and live. You turn from an old manner, an old man, to a new manner, a new man. In Christ Jesus. You let him have that throne. And if he sits on that throne, what do you think is going to begin to come in through the floodgate? Uh-huh. All of him. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Repent. Turn from this. This desolate ruin. This rebellion. You seated in a position that is not yours. Get off that throne. He has made a way. Repent and believe. When you do that, when you turn from your old manner unto a new manner, 
unto belief in Christ Jesus instead of belief in what the enemy was duping you with. Saying, no, your garden's fine. Don't believe the devil. Believe the word of God. My garden is not fine. I am a ruin. I have no life. I cannot produce any life. Everything I've ever done in this garden is filthy. It's like dung. It means nothing in the heavenlies. I agree with what God says. I am wrong and he is right. And I turn from this. I yield up that throne to its rightful owner, Jesus Christ. My old man is crucified with him. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And I turn unto a newness of life in Christ Jesus. The faith. The implicit confidence in the great work of the cross. The turning over of the garden to its rightful gardener. And the presenting and yielding of the garden to the return of the mighty river. What do you need in your garden? You need the gardener to return. Have you noticed that you don't tend to your garden very well? Yeah, I have. When my gardener is not present, when his word does not reign in my garden, weeds grow. You know that when the gardener, the almighty gardener comes again, when he returns to your garden, first thing first, pulls up the floodgate and lets the cleansing waters in. You know what the deluge did? It cleansed sin from the earth. You know what God's deluge does? It cleanses sin from your life. It's a purifying flood that washes through your existence. Who opens the floodgate? Well, you could say it's you, but actually it's the gardener. You turn and believe, and then he comes in. What does he do when he is allowed in? He has all gifts to give, to bestow upon us. And one of those gifts, in fact, such a precious one, is that mighty river of grace. The grace, that mighty river that drenches the dead plot of land with abundant life, destroys and cleanses the dead territory of all disease, and richly saturates and fertilizes the soil of the garden with everything needed for heavenly flowers to once again bud and burst forth with beauty. It's the power, the life, the impetus, and the strength of God's life poured forth. Grace, it's a mighty rushing river. What saves you? What does it say in Scripture? You are saved by grace through faith. So turning unto God and believing his word seems to open a channel. That obedience brings life. And then the life of God is able to begin to move into your existence. Remember the testimony of Samuel Logan Brangle? He believes, he confesses, he turns unto the living God and says, my life belongs to you. I believe that you own it, that you possessed it. That at that cross, you purchased it with your blood. That you are the rightful owner of it. And I turn from my old manner of living. And what happens? But a work of grace begins to cascade into his life. And suddenly, he's changed. And everything he looks at is new. And the very things that used to irritate him, now he loves Uh, everything around him from sparrows to kids on the street, the whole kit and caboodle. I I love, I just want to give. I have something to give. I must share. I must give. You see, when true revival awakens in the church, you know, you don't need to twist anyone's arm to share the gospel. They have to, because the spirit of the one who has entered in you has changed your motive. And now your motive is to give, is to share. It's not like, oh, great, I have to share. That isn't how it works. You've been changed. A mighty river is gushing into you, and guess what? There's not room in you to hold it all. So what's going to happen? It's going to start splashing over the sides of your banks. 
and everyone around you is going to start getting drenched, whether they like it or not. So where were we in this? It richly saturates and fertilizes the soil of the garden with everything needed for heavenly flowers to once again bud and burst forth with beauty. It's the power, the life, the impetus, and the strength of God's life poured forth. The love. So here we started out with love. It's the praritzum, the set motive, the origin point, the fountainhead of God. That which moves him. But then what is he going to create? This river of life gushes into you. It says, the beautiful heavenly flowers that burst forth in the garden. The fragrance of life returned to the once dead garden. The evidence of transformation. The grand tree of life that vividly and powerfully grows up in the midst of the river, offering its beauty, majesty, strength, shade, and abundant fruit to all that pass by. What is the evidence that we've been changed by Jesus Christ? It's fruit. It's known as love. You see, grace moves in us and then reveals itself in and through behavior actions, attitudes. If you are a Christian who declares all the right things but does not show that life transformed fruit, something's wrong. Faith without that ultimate revelation of transformed fruit is dead. It must work its way out. If you truly believe, then in comes the river and up grows Jesus in your life. And it's the fruit of Jesus that is shared and your motive has been altered. You invite people in. Take, have you tried this fruit? Try it. Oh, there's never anything like it. And they're like, you want me to eat this fruit? Yes, that's what it's there for. I want to share all that God has given me. He has changed me. He's given me joy and peace. I have life to give, and I can't hold it back for myself. What's happened? Your motive has changed. You see, you have now begun to adopt the motive of God, which is love. And as a result, out from underneath that throne comes this river of life, clear as crystal. And it begins to flood into the entire countryside. And everywhere it goes, it's bringing life. Love. Now, this is the correct Greek way of pronouncing it. Agape. Isn't that, doesn't that mess with you? Because most of you are thinking, agape. Come on, Eric. I'm just saying. You know, I want to sound somewhat learned in my Greek. Agape. Okay? Agape. The alpha and the omega of God's motive. It's the beginning and the end. It's the first and the last. The alpha is the first letter in the, in the Greek uh, alphabet, and omega is the last. Jesus is the alpha and the omega. Love, agape, is the alpha and the omega. It starts with love, and it ends with love. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God. So love is of God. Therefore, we should love. In other words, if God truly is crescendoing into our life, let us allow that to come out as, as it ought. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. So how can you determine if someone knows God? By love. That's how you will know the disciples. They love. Their motive alters. That's what demonstrates a change of life. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. Agape, the fountainhead and the chief end. The Westminster Confession, question one. What is the chief end of man? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. If I had a better British accent, I would use it. 
It's good stuff. I can stand with that. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I think that's a fairly succinct way of saying it. So, agape, I'm going to say, is the glory of God. When love begins to grow up as a tree of life and spread forth its branches and bear its fruit, what is this world seeing when they see love in a believer? They're seeing the glory of God. They're seeing the very nature of God expressed in and through your life. And as a result, it's known as the glory of God. The glory of God seems to be made manifest in and through our fruit, in and through our life lived. There is a hope of glory, it says in Colossians. What is that hope of glory? Christ in us is that hope of glory. So when Christ fills us, up grows a tree known as Jesus in us, ever growing and ever maturing, stretching forth its branches to share the fruit of God with everyone around. Agape is the glory of God. The full weighty expression of his person, his beauty, his holiness, his majesty, his joy, his peace, his affection, his purity, his justice, his mercy, his kindness, his wrath, and his power. Agape is of God, and God is agape. Agape is God behavior, God thoughts, God actions, God nature, God character, God ethics, God compassion, and God's manner with sin. And it is this agape that reveals God. Agape is the great work of grace and the great end of faith. When you believe, what is the end? It's agape. And what does grace that saves you through faith produce? Or it's the great work of grace. What is it? It's love. And it's the great end of faith. Second Peter, this is typically known as the seven graces in Scripture. So when we talk about grace, when we talk about the manifold wonder of grace, this would fit in very well. But it's going to go through seven things that are operations of grace. Remember that mighty river that's coming in? What's it doing? It's cleansing from all sin. It's renewing. It's saturating soil so now a new life can begin to come forth. And so this grace is moving in your life so that fruit of righteousness will begin to be evidenced in your life. Now, as I'm going through this, there's two words you're going to recognize, faith and agape. You're going to notice that faith is at the very beginning of the list of graces. At the very end, you're going to see agape. All the other ones are just going to be strange Greek words to you, okay? Because I don't want you to feel too comfortable with the list. Because if I read the list in English terms, you'd fog over. Things like virtue and knowledge, you're like, yeah, so knowledge is... No, you need to understand what they mean, though. So here, I'm just going to read this through. I'll give you a, a little glossary in a second. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And besides this, beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith. In other words, we start with faith. That's what accesses all the grace. You are saved by grace through faith. So don't just stop there. Let the river flow. Add to your faith arite typically translated virtue, but don't get distracted by that. See, that means nothing to us. We're like, eh, how do I add virtue to my faith? Well, just, just watch. Add to your faith arite, arite gnosis, and to gnosis ekretia, and to ekretia hupomone, and to hupomone usibia, and to usubia, usibia philadelphia, and to philadelphia agape. I sound sort of Spanish. For if these things be in you and abound... They make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is garden terminology. 
But he that lacks these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Good deluge terminology. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. Introducing the house of grace. We could call it the house of seven rooms. When you come to Jesus Christ, the house of grace is open to you. Now, this is a different metaphor than a river, but just for a second, we're going to call it a house that you can explore, and it has different rooms. And so what we are called to do as Christians is explore each of the rooms. It's almost like they're each levels. And so you go to the first level, and with all diligence, climb the stairs to the next one. Keep climbing. Keep climbing. That we would reveal the fullness of what Christ has given to us. So arite, we could call this the grace for overcoming sin and walking in triumph. When you first turn to Jesus Christ, you know what you're given? Arite. Where, how, do, how do you get that? Remember, Jesus sits on the throne, and what does he do? He opens up the floodgate, and in flows grace. And what happens with that grace? If you receive that grace into your life, literally, there is grace for overcoming sin and walking in triumph. For those of you that have not yet experienced that, I just want you to know. These are biblical facts, not a wish list for, you know, the poor wandering soul that just wants to make up its own Bible. This is what God promises. Gnosis, the grace for understanding truth and walking in faith. Egratia, the grace for guarding the soul from sin's encroachment and walking in self-control. Hupomone, the grace for endurance, perseverance, and immovability. Eusebia, the grace for honorable action. Philadelphia, the grace for dealing with people. Agape, the grace for walking in all the graces and for revealing God's very nature and behavior always. What does it grow up unto? What does faith grow up unto by the work of grace? But love, the chief end, to see the full glory of God revealed in us as humans. You take those seven things. I don't want to leave one behind. That is one extraordinary list. And what is being seen? You see, with each of these things, you could say, grace for overcoming sin and walking in triumph. Well, that's love. Yeah, because those who obey his commands are showing love. And that's what we're doing. We're now obeying his commands, and now we're showcasing the love of God. These are all dimensions of love, just as they are works of grace. How do we get this love? That's a key question right about now, isn't it? It's like, okay, I want it. I'm sick and tired of my desolate, ruined garden. I want that. The Father God so loves. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We have three characters, three persons of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father so loves that he gives his Son. The Son expresses the Father's love perfectly. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What was the perfect expression of God's love? Christ's death. Christ's life given. It showcased the motive of God. This is the motive of God. Do you see how Christ gives? He wants to share his life. Uh huh. So this is the expression of the Father's love in the Son. The Father could only, I'm sorry, the Son only did that which the Father was doing, only spoke that which the Father was speaking, only gave that which the Father was giving. So when Jesus gave up his life, he was giving that which the Father told him to give. It's that which he received from the Father, and he gave it. And then the Spirit takes this love and sheds it abroad in our hearts. So it says, And hope makes not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. How do you get this? 
You see, Jesus has made it manifest. He has showcased it on the cross. But there's one who delivers it to your soul. Okay, now I'm going to break this down a little more specifically. How be it when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. This is Jesus talking about the one. You see, he says, it is better that I go to be with the Father. Because if I go to be with the Father, I can give you the helper. I can give you the one who will help you into all of these things, who will lead you to them. Last week, we gave him the name the Parakletos. He will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. You know what? That's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus only did that which his father was doing, only spoke that which his father was speaking. How about the Spirit? He only does that which Jesus is doing, and only speaks that which Jesus is speaking. Perfect relationship between them. Perfect submission. And he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. All things that, are the, that the Father hath are mine. Where did Jesus get all that he has? From the Father. Where does the Spirit get all that he has? From Jesus. So ultimately, the Spirit has all the Father has. How do you get to the Father? Through Jesus. And yet, who brings you to Jesus? The Spirit. This is how they work together. Well, I'm going to walk this through with you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I that he, shall sh- that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. Who has love? Who started this whole thing out? For God so loved that he gave. Who has all that the Father has? Jesus. Who has all that Jesus has? And who has come to give it to you? Okay, so... Don't get weirded out just because I mentioned the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is very sane. It's God. Safe. The Father has glory, honor, power, riches, wisdom, strength, blessing, thanksgiving, and salvation. This is just that classic list in in Revelation that gets into worship songs. All of the glory, all the power, all the honor. Who did it go to? Who was worthy to receive it? Jesus. Who gave it to him? The Father. So let's walk through this. The Father has glory, honor, power, riches, wisdom, strength, blessing, thanksgiving, and salvation. The Father so loves the world, he desires to share of his great eternal life and wealth. The Son, as the high priest, intercedes for lost humanity and lives the worthy life that we could not, bears the just consequence and wrath for our sin, sheds his own blood as the lamb of sacrifice, and subsequently opens up a way of salvation for those of us who would believe. Due to his perfect obedience, he receives from the Father, as our legal representative, our King, Lord, and High Priest, the glory, honor, power, riches, wisdom, strength, blessing, thanksgiving, and salvation. He is given the position above all other positions from whom? From the Father. And all things are under his feet. See, all things are under the Father's feet. And the Son, in standing in a position, a legal representative position for us, is given all of this. Why did he do it this way? Because Christ is the vehicle for us. We must be clothed in Christ. And in Christ, we receive all that belongs to Christ. How do we get all that belongs to the Father? In Christ. And so it says, He has given the position above all other positions from the Father, and all things are under His feet. Now listen to this. The Son so loves the world, He desires to share of His great eternal life and wealth. 
So he goes to be with the Father in order to supply us entry into the throne room of grace in order that we might partake of his glory, honor, power, riches, wisdom, strength, blessing, thanksgiving, and salvation. For this to be accomplished, he gives all his glory, honor, power, riches, wisdom, strength, and blessing, thanksgiving, and salvation to his spirit in order that he might bring it to us. Who has all of it? The Father. Who does he bequeath it to? Who is worthy to receive it? The Son. Who takes of all the Son has to bring to us? The Spirit. The Son so loves that he gives. His desire, his motive is the same as God. He is God. And he gives that which he has. But how does he give it? He gives it to the Spirit. The Spirit so loves the world that he plunges forth into this dark world in order to proclaim that the glory, honor, power, riches, wisdom, strength, blessing, thanksgiving, and salvation that belongs to Jesus has been made available to all who would believe in Christ Jesus and his mighty cross work. He convicts, he woos, he labors to awaken the dead in sin that they may be revived. He ushers forth the lifeless soul into the realities of Jesus and him crucified. He supplies faith that one might believe. And then when one believes, he clothes the believer in the perfect and spotless robe of Christ's righteousness and brings them to the cross in Christ Jesus, severing their old life from them in the death of Christ. The Spirit brings them to the burial of their old behavior, and he brings them to the resurrection life unto a new creation in Christ Jesus. He then brings them forth into the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. How do we come near in the blood of Jesus? Clothed in the righteousness that the Spirit of God himself awakened us to. He says, put this on. And we, in faith, have clothed ourselves in Christ, and the Spirit of God woos us and says, come near. Come near. Come near unto the throne of grace, clothed in Jesus Christ, because the only one that has access unto that place is Jesus. And the Father has given him all things. So it says, where the Father rejoices... Let me read this line again just so it's better articulated. He then brings them forth into the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus and boldly pushes them forward into the throne room of grace where the Father rejoices in receiving them and allows them near in the person of Christ, even adopting them as, as his very own children, where access is given to all the glory, honor, power, riches, wisdom, strength, blessing, thanksgiving, and salvation of Christ. The Father so loves the believer. So the believer has now been brought near. But the Father so loves the believer, the one who has been brought near in the person of Christ, that he tells the Son to tell the Spirit, to tell us, to ask him in the person of Christ for the gift of the Spirit to be given us in baptism, which is the indwelling position. Baptism means in. Ask. Hey, hey Jesus, I have something and I want to give it to them. And then Jesus tells the Spirit and says, Tell them that all they must do is ask the Father. It's in the word of God. Jesus spoke it. Ask. The Father will love to give you the Spirit. And the Spirit of God turns our eyes to that scripture and says, do you see it? And reveals it to our soul and says, ask. And the Spirit is doing what, the, what Jesus asked him to do, which is what the Father gave to Jesus. So the Son, the Son so loves the believer that he instantly declares to the Spirit to reveal the, to the believer that all he need do is ask, and the Father will certainly give. The Spirit so loves the believer and so longs to indwell the believer in order to shower that believer with the full manifestation of God's very life, that the Spirit calls forth the believer and reminds them of the very words of the Son and says, Ask the Father. 
in the person of Jesus Christ, clothed in his righteousness and his authority, the believer asks the Father for the Spirit. And from beneath the throne upon which Jesus Christ sits, the Spirit of God gushes forth like a mighty river. Listen to this scripture in Romans 5. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. See, shed abroad doesn't make a lot of sense to us, so I have the the Greek word for it here. Now, unfortunately, this is a very close-sounding word to another word that you will learn this semester. Now, I have a nice pronunciation guide for you. Ech, echeo, echeo. Now, we have another word called echeo, which is a very different meaning. So this can be somewhat strange, but echeo means this, to gush forth in great measure, to severely hemorrhage blood as from a spear wound. I'm going to read that one again just in case you missed it. Because it doesn't seem to fit, does it? To severely hemorrhage blood is from a spear wound. One of the number one ways in the Bible that this word shed abroad or hecheo is used has to do with the outpouring of blood. People literally being gutted and blood flushing out. Okay, I want you to recognize that's not an accident. It sounds disgusting, I know. Where was the life given you? At the cross. You remember John, as he saw the river gushing out of Jesus' side, saying, I witnessed it. To gush forth in great measure, to severely hemorrhage blood as from a spear wound, to burst forth in massive quantity, to dump out in entirety, to break open and spill out, to distribute in great measure, to cascade over due to the vast abundance of substance gushing without restraint into a small vessel. Could you imagine a little cup down here and we have Niagara Falls coming into it? Yeah, that. So I added my own here. A Niagara waterfall overwhelmingly plunging into a small container. Who's the container? That's us. And it's a Niagara waterfall, a mighty river of grace. And you're concerned that God may not have enough of it. You are so overwhelmed that what happens? It cascades over the banks of your river and floods the world around you. It's called revival, a spirit movement of grace, where God does his work coming into the hearts, the lives, the gardens of the believers, and then it gushes forth so that everyone around is getting wet. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us, echel, abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Do you know this flood? Do you know this deluge? Do you understand it? Do you understand where it comes from? Do you understand how to get it? First things first, you come to the cross. You turn your back on your old life. And you believe in the risen one. You believe in the one who has done the work. And that opens up the channel for Jesus to take his rightful position in your life. And the floodgates are prepared to open. Your job is to ask the Father. Your job is to say, in the person of Jesus Christ, whom I've been brought near by the blood of Jesus, my old man, my old garden has been removed. It's buried. It's no longer the present state of things. I have a new life in Christ Jesus. I'm in Christ, and therefore I am a new creation. All things are made new. In that new state, Jesus sitting on that throne, you ask the Father 
And do you think the father is going to hesitate? What's his motive? His motive is to bring that river to you. Why do you think he sent the son? It's so that you would be asking this very thing right now. It's to restore you to where you must be, to bear the fruit of love, to bring glory to God, the chief end. Of course he's going to say yes. It's done. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. Where, what's your position? If you're in Christ Jesus, you have access unto the Father. And it's the Spirit of God that is revealing these promises to you. And then you, he is ushering you forth into the throne room of grace in the person of Christ to ask of the Father. The deluge, the flood of grace. Therefore with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thy offspring. And the Lord shall guide thee continually and satisfy thy soul in drought and make fat thy bones and thou shalt be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters fail not. It's about time we started taking some of these. Good scriptures. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Here we are, key line. Remember, the deluge enters into us. The waterfall of God's grace into this small little vessel known as us. We can't contain it. It's God Almighty. It's a mighty rushing river and we're just a small little vessel. Says Jesus, he that believes on me, as the scriptures hath said, out of his belly, which means his innermost man, his garden, shall flow rivers of living water. It gushes in like a waterfall and then flows out into this world. And as we see in the book of Ezekiel, it flows from underneath the throne, and then it gets deeper and deeper and deeper and floods all the way to the lowest territory, which is the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea teems with life. That which was always dead now is alive. Yeah, it's called the river of life. What do you think's going to come out of it? Life. Life abundant. What was the motive of darkness? To steal, to kill, and destroy. What was the motive of God as revealed by Jesus? To bring life and that more abundant. You want abundant life? It's in Christ Jesus. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Where's Jesus seated? At the right hand of the Father. So look at how it's worded. Proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. This is the source of it. You have access to this throne when Jesus takes his rightful place. He is the Lamb enthroned. He must be in that position. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life. Now, this is such an interesting statement. It says a street. And so there's like this river that's a street. I'm not exact. I can't explain it. That's just the term used. It's actually translated a street. I looked it up. I was like, what? And a tree is growing out of it, in the middle of it, but also on both sides of it. I have no idea. This is some weird tree that water can get through. So I picture these roots, these massive roots coming out so water can flow freely underneath. That's just a wild guess. All I know is what it says. However, what grows up in the midst of this mighty river? 
life. A revelation of God's love. Do you see what comes forth out of the heart of God? He gives of himself. Everything he has goes. If he has any more, it still floods. And guess what? This river will never end. You can never reach. You can never tap the ends of that river. It flows eternally. Full force cascading forth. Never ending. Never ceasing. And then what grows up? Life. Life comes forth out of this river. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bore, bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. And let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. God's almighty river of grace, sufficient for every thirsty soul. Remember my purifier, my water purifier in the kitchen, constantly trying to tip it? Some of us, that's how our Christian life has worked. It's not that we do not have a trickle. It's not that we don't have a little, it's called a rivulet, a little small stream. And we're like, I have a stream. Don't tell me, Eric, that I don't have this. I have love in my life. I'd say the same thing to you. I have had a river in my life. There's just no doubt about it. There's no other explanation for what has happened in my life. However, when I was going through this message this week, I recognize that my faith in that deluge, in that shedding forth of love by the Holy Spirit, has been diminished. It's been capped at a certain level. Almost like, no, God, I don't want to ask for that much. I only want a little. I've decided that I want the whole kit and caboodle. I don't want to have a stream, a little friendly stream coursing in me and out of me. And it's like, oh... This nice sweet thing that gushes out and trickles on someone's foot. And they're like, oh, what's that? I'm like, that's my stream <laughs> flowing from my belly. I really do have life. And I really do focus outward. And I really do love. However, there's something that has been touched in me this week. And it is that there needs to be a flooding of my life. A full, nothing held back, flood. The gate must be fully opened. I do not want me. I want a complete healing of everything in this land. I want to be the flow-through channel. I want to be the little vessel that gushes over. Remember, this goes great with last week, the bold confession. What is the bold confession? Well, it's the Spirit of God confessing in and through us. The Spirit of God must show you Jesus. That's his motive, is to bring love, life to you. And then where, where's, where's that going to be found? In Jesus. And so he confesses Jesus unto our souls. That's what he does for a living. And what do we do when the Spirit of God invades us? We gush out with the message of Jesus. With the life of the Spirit, which is all about Jesus. Jesus, 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 Jesus. I have something and I can't hold it in. If you try and hold in that flood, could you imagine what damage would be done to you? Could you imagine a flood coming in? You would burst. Oh. So let it out. Open the floodgate out. Not just the floodgate in, but the floodgate out so that that which you freely received, you can freely give. That's Christianity. I remember there was one message called Encouragably Cheerful, which changed me. It just changed me. It's like I, something clicked into place, and I recognized that when something difficult is happening and I leap and I obey the scriptures by faith, that then that floodgate opens. This is the exact same thing for us. 
I am choosing to come to the Father and say, I want it. I want it. In agreement with the Scriptures. And the Holy Spirit, commissioned by the Father, and then the the Son who so loves the world just as the Father does, gives the commission to the Spirit to go. Head forth. Don't hold back. Cascade with your grace into that life so that once again on this earth, life can be evidenced in and through the believer. Love can shine forth. The fruit of righteousness will come and be born again in us. The garden will return. God's almighty river of grace, sufficient for every thirsty soul. Now you'll have new eyes for this one. And God is able to make all grace, that mighty river, abound toward you. Abound. Move with great speed. Gush forth in a superfluous measure. Abound. You cannot contain it. Overwhelming, tide-like force. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you. That you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance. An abundance for every good work. You don't just have what you need. You have an abundance for every good work. Everything you're going to be commissioned towards, you have an abundance. That's the word of God which cannot lie. Take it. Run with it. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.